by their fruits you shall know them. Buy, 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 buy their fruits. fruits you shall know them welcome to buy their fruits my name's bryant and i'm here with my co-host jeremy jeremy how's it going today brother you know i'm, I'm very glad that i can end the night with an interview with Derek gilbert how you doing brother <laughs> i'm doing great thank you very much we are blessed beyond measure you are a an astounding author why don't you give the audience a little background about yourself and uh who you are how they can contact you your crazy credentials <laughs> well the credentials i i'm not sure actually uh relate to what I do. I mean, uh, you know, I don't have a, uh, uh, any kind of academic training for what I do. I, I, I'm what I guess they would call in the old days an autodidact. I train myself, you know, just a lot of reading. Um, I, I've got a degree in economics and went into broadcasting while I was still in college and spent uh, the first dozen years or so, well, maybe not that long, maybe the first eight or nine years after college uh, in broadcasting. I, I can see now that that was training for what, uh, what I do now. But I didn't realize it at the time. When my secular radio career fell apart, I was uh, kind of at, at loose ends. I didn't know what uh, what to do because I thought that's that was going to be my life, broadcasting forever, you know. So I wound up in uh, in sales and uh, spent uh, oh from like uh, 1994 until about 2006 in uh, in sales, mostly in steel sales, uh, steel pipe and then structural steel, inside sales, outside sales. Um, about 2006, I got uh, the bug to go back into uh, broadcasting, and so I, I wound up uh, doing that for about a year and a half in secular radio as a talk radio host. Went back into steel sales because um, we had to move to Indiana, and, and really that was the right thing to do. Sharon's mother was uh, was getting frail, and uh, so we moved back to Indiana so she could be closer to her mother. And you know that was that was good. It helped us get our uh, feet under us. I can tell you that the steel sales business uh, pays better than broadcasting. But during all of this uh, period, around 2002, Sharon and I began writing. She'd been writing, um, you know, since long before we met. And that's one of the things that attracted me to her. Um, she is uh, a very gifted writer. I thought I had no skill at that. She has shown me since that uh, that was uh, just lack of confidence on my part. I can write. It's more work for me than it is for her. She can crank out word count like, uh, you know, like nobody's business. But we started writing a, a fiction series where the two of us were writing separately from one another, but we were sharing plot points and characters. And um, publisher thought that was really cool and published her first novel, first two novels, actually, The Armageddon Strain and Winds of Evil. And um, as they were working on my first novel, The God Conspiracy, they, they started getting a little skittish because we were writing about things like um, government conspiracies and crop circles and UFOs and demon possession and uh, so on, really without the theological background to do what we were doing at the time. But they had wanted us to start promoting our novels, which was surprising to us because we thought that was why you got a publisher. And the publisher took care of the marketing and the distribution. <laughs> you just did the writing. And so, okay, well, had some radio background, thought, all right, this new podcasting thing is um, is just out there. So in early 2005, we started podcasting. And uh, that was the, the origin of PID radio, which stood for peering into darkness. 
And uh, after we did our first show, which said, you know, basically told people to buy our books, we thought, okay, what are we going to do next week? And that's when we started um, discussing the topics that motivated us to write and started interviewing people who were doing research into these areas, like uh, people like Tom Horn and L.A. Marzulli and Steve Quayle and, and uh, so on. And that's how we came to be part of this, this group of, of strange Christians. So uh, looking back on it, we thought that we were podcasting to market our books, but in fact, we began writing in order to start podcasting, which is what led us to uh, what we're doing now. And um, one thing led to another. We started uh, doing interviews at uh, prophecy conferences after uh, Gary Stearman and Bob Ulrich of Prophecy Watchers, Tom Horn, uh, began doing prophecy conferences back in 2010, 2011. Um, they invited us to come out and set up our podcasting gear and um, somebody got a bright idea to stick a video camera in w one of the interview rooms and offering those interviews as uh, extras for the DVD sets. And then they invited us to start speaking at conferences. And that led to, uh, you know, I, I found that uh, when you have to outline a, a one hour presentation that you're going to give in front of anywhere from 500 to 1,000 people, suddenly you've got an outline for a book that led to writing books again, except this time now, thanks to the research of people like Mike Heiser and, and other theologians that we've talked to over the years, uh, now we've got some theological background. I'm more comfortable writing nonfiction, but uh, I'm working on a follow-up to my novel. Uh, Sharon is eight novels deep into her series, The Red Wing Saga, and applying the Divine Council research and some of the research that we've done into her series. In fact, some of the historical characters that have popped up during our research are now part of her, her series. Um, like Charles Warren, who discovered the stone inside the temple on the summit of Mount Hermon is a recurring character in her series. So um, that's that's it in kind of a nutshell. Uh, we kind of took the long way round. Again, no academic credentials behind my name, but we try to do our due diligence when it comes to the research and um, cite a lot of sources. I think my last book, uh, The Second Coming of Saturn, has like 550 footnotes. Um, a bunch of those are scripture, but a lot of those are to academic papers. And most of the research we do is to uh, is done by secular uh, academics who are, you know, archaeologists and epigraphers. Uh, some of them are Bible scholars, but uh, most of them don't have a biblical worldview. It's just we take that research and say, okay, this is why you can believe that the Bible is true. And the Bible is a, a deeper record of a long war than we've been taught. Um, it's It's literally a war against death. And uh, now, having done this now since coming to the Ozarks to partner with um, Skywatch TV in 2015, uh, seven years of basically researching this every day now, since this is our livelihood, um, we've got the uh, the research to back up those claims. It's not just speculation anymore. Yeah, I would have to say that you're like, as as uh, Brian mentioned at the beginning of the show, you know, your research and quite a few of those at Skywatch, people like Dr. Michael Heiser, those you guys have influenced us tremendously and you gave us this fresh lens to read the bible and the way that you guys put it in your books and uh, you know your podcasts and everything the people that you even have on your show that help explain these things even deeper has really made the bible come alive it makes the spiritual warfare that is happening all around us way more real than you would find uh taught at your your local church you know what i mean and i think that has helped a tremendous amount of people grow in the Lord have found deeper knowledge that you don't typically see 
uh, within the Word of God, unless people like you bring it out and have shown us these things, because well, yeah, you're very kind and gracious, and I, I appreciate that. But we, you know, have to give credit to God. I mean, the, the, the words are all in there, and we are not trying to come up with some strange new way of interpreting the Bible to to draw secret knowledge out of the Bible. That's right. that's how cults get started. Um, and, and that is not what we're trying to do at all. We're trying to go back to reading the Bible and understanding the world around us the way the prophets and the apostles understood. That is the key. And when you start reading and, and, and studying what the neighbors of ancient Israel believed about the world from, uh, you know, in the Christian era, the Greeks, the Romans, the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, who by that time were pretty Hellenized. They were mostly Greek by that point. Uh, and going back to the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and you know what did the uh, uh, what did the Amorites who surrounded them believe? What did the, uh, uh, the the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites? What did the Hurrians who came from uh, the Kurdish regions of uh, Syria and Iraq today? What did they believe, and how did they influence the Israelite worldview? You begin to see why certain things happen in the Bible that otherwise don't make any sense. Why did God tell Moses in Exodus 14 to turn around? Um, I don't remember that from the movie, you know, the Ten Commandments. They were getting away and they got to the sea and, oh, no, we're trapped against the sea. No, when you read the book of Exodus, God specifically told Moses, turn around and camp at this place opposite Baal Zephon. Like th- this was the eye-opening moment for us back in 2016 as we got to Exodus 14 in our Bible study. Like, wait, wait, wait a minute, or 2015, I think. Um, Baal is a, a Canaanite god. Why is he in Egypt? Well, secular archaeologists have known about this for a very long time. It was a period of history that they call the second intermediate period in Egyptian history, where the, the Hyksos, who were probably Amorites, Semitic-speaking neighbors of the ancient Israelites who came down and took over the Nile Delta, you know, northern Egypt, or what uh, what historians call lower Egypt. Um, and their chief god, of course, being Amorite, was uh, the storm god Baal, or Baal. And Zaphon was the name of the mountain that Baal's palace was located on. Everyone in the ancient world knew that. But we don't know it because we've not been taught history. So why would God tell him to go and camp at a place sacred to Baal on the shore of of the Red Sea? Well, because Baal became the king of the pantheon by defeating the sea god, Yom, in single combat. Like, oh, okay, this is just like the uh, the, the uh, uh, Yahweh versus Leviathan story from the Bible, twisted into a fake news version for the Canaanites and the Amorites. God was sending a message to Baal, who, by the way, Jesus in Matthew 12 specifically links to Satan, so this is a message essentially to Satan, and God was using Moses and the Israelites to make a point. Otherwise, you know, it's like, oh, he's just doing this for the big special effect, you know, of parting the Red Sea. And then, no, it was to show that the God of the Bible was the true master of the sea, which represented chaos in the ancient world, by the way. Um, God is showing that he was more powerful than Baal and also more powerful than chaos, Leviathan, at the same time. So there are, the Bible is full of stuff like that that you don't understand unless you dig into the uh, what what the ancient pagans believed, 
And uh, that's really all we're trying to do. Really what we're trying to do is take the work of Michael Heiser and the divine council concept, the existence of other small G gods in the spirit realm, and apply it to the Bible. It definitely seems like the only details that are left out a lot of times are the most important ones, right? Like we get little glimpses of these stories and we know little pieces. And, you know, it's like even as grown adults, we're still uh, thinking in that Sunday school form, which is like entry level, right? It gets you uh, passionate about reading the word of God and interested and and. So, yeah, I kind of found, you know, your ministry through listening to Justin Fall. And I moved to Hmm. Washington in 2015. And so my brother-in-law turned me on to podcast and I was like, whoa. So just some hot button keywords that I searched led me to his show. And then I'm I'm listening and I'm like, oh, wait, that scripture has a lot to do with this stuff. And so that's kind of what our intention with this show is as well, is to keep it relevant and interesting, but always like bring that center it back on on Christ and what he's done for us and, and having Amen. an understanding of, of why, because it's real easy to say, yes, I understand. Yes, I believe he died on the cross. But do you really understand why? And I think a lot of your work really shows the enemy's plan. And of course, what do we see in the temptation, right? In the wilderness? What is uh, Jesus' yeah. only combat? He fights back with the true word of God against twisted mm-hmm. scripture. So I think what the work you're doing is very important. And it has kind of open my eyes to some topics and some characters that I had no idea would be related to one another and definitely related to biblical topics at all. Well, it's really fascinating because Sharon and I've been doing a lot of study here in the last couple of weeks um, on the wilderness and and the relevance, significance of the wilderness to the whole narrative of the the story. Uh, In fact, this is part of what we learned while we were in uh, your neck of the woods, Jeremy. We were in Albuquerque, and I'd forgotten that you're in Albuquerque. We should have... uh, made some time to try to connect while we were there. Oddly Absolutely. Enough, this uh, archaeology conference was held at the Marriott uh, Pyramid North, which is actually like a, a step pyramid. It was actually a ziggurat, which was very appropriate for the biblical archaeology theme. Trinity Southwest University there in Albuquerque is, uh, the, the archaeology department is headed up by Dr. Stephen Collins, who has been leading a dig the last 16 years at a site in Jordan, just across the river from uh, Jericho. It's due east of Jericho. It's called Tal El Hammam. It's a big hill that extends out into the valley, which was the well-watered plain that Lot saw when he looked up from uh, Bethel, which is in the hill country of uh, Ephraim, uh, north of Jerusalem. And so he went there. Sodom is located there, northeast of the Dead Sea, not southeast like we've traditionally been taught. But Dr. Collins, in his book back in 2014, uh, he, he wrote a book or co-authored a book, Finding the City of Sodom. And in the book, just in passing, he makes mention of an estimated uh, 1,500 dolmens at the base of the city. Uh, dolmens are these big me- megalithic funerary monuments that uh, look like tables, like two big slabs of stone um, with, with a big capstone across the top. Uh, you find these dolmens all over the world from, uh, well, actually not so much in the Western Hemisphere. I don't, there may be a few here in North America, but that's debated. But they're all over Europe and Asia from Korea to um, Ireland, you can find them e- everywhere. But there are more of them clustered in the Jordan River Valley between the Dead Sea and Mount Hermon than anywhere else. And there are more of them at the base of what used to be the city of Sodom than anywhere in the Jordan Valley. So this stuck in my mind. And when Sharon and I started researching the Rephaim and realizing that uh, as you, the you, Drawing on the work of Mike Heiser in his book, Reversing Hermon, which is the sin of the watchers, the sons of God from Genesis chapter six, who descended to the summit of Mount Hermon, according to the book of First Enoch, 
who uh, co-mingled with human women and created uh, children who were hybrid uh, human divine giants who uh, began to uh, enslave humanity, um, basically consuming everything that kept humanity alive. They, they posed an existential threat to humanity, which forced God to send the flood of Noah. Now, that's that part of the narrative just kind of skipped over in the Bible, but I think it's because the, the prophets and the apostles just assumed that everybody knew that story. It, it's hinted at by Jude, who actually quotes from the book of First Enoch, uh, and Peter, who both mention, um, you know, re reference angels who sinned, who because of their sin are in chains in gloomy darkness. And Peter goes so far as to specifically place them in Tartarus. Uh, the Bible in 2 Peter 2 verse 4 says, God thrust them down to hell, but the Greek word is Tartarosis. It's not Hades, it's Tartarus. That's a different place that was believed to be reserved for supernatural threats to the divine order. The old gods of the Greeks, the Titans, were punished and they were in Tartarus. Well, their sin was creating these hybrid giants who were destroyed in the flood. And according to Enoch, their spirits became the spirits uh, known as demons. Um, this was even known to the Greeks. I and mean, when you read the poet Hesiod, who wrote a lot of what uh, we know about Greek mythology, um, he mentions that the, uh, the spirits of the men who lived during the golden age, when Kronos ruled in heaven, in other words, the demigods of the pre-flood era, when they died, their spirits became daemons, demons. But the Greeks had a very different view of them. They believed that those spirits could be kindly and helpful if you sacrificed to them. Uh, this is from a, uh, and uh, a scholar by the name of Amar Anus showed in a paper that the Greeks actually understood that those uh, spirits came from a special class of men uh, and that the term that was used to describe them, Merapes um, anthropoi, okay, anthropoi, anthropological, human, okay, but Merapes, both Homer and Hesiod use that phrase to talk about the men of the pre-flood era, the golden age when Kronos or Saturn ruled in heaven. Uh, that derives from the same Semitic root word behind the word Rephaim. So you put all this together, you realize, oh, the Greek and Roman stories about heroes like Hercules and Perseus derive from the same sources as the Canaanite Amorite stories about their mighty men who were of old, some of whom are named in uh, some of the Ugaritic texts. That was a, an Amorite kingdom from about the time of the judges, destroyed during the time of the judges. Um, they they uh, believed that their their ancestral kings, the spirits of those ancestral kings, the Rephaim, uh, could bless the land and bless the king. And it was the, uh, the goal of every Amorite king in the ancient world to become one of the member of the, uh, the, the assembly of the Rephaim in the afterlife. Or, and, and this is really bizarre, they actually had a temple at this city of Ugarit, which is in northern Syria, uh, to a, a group of underworld spirits called the Council of the Ditanu. Ditanu. And this scholar, Amar Anus, showed that the etymology of that word derives from, uh, well, actually was the origin of the Greek name for their old gods, the Titans. So the, 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 the bottom line is Greek and Roman religion, their mythology, comes from what the Amorites, the Canaanites believed, the Babylonians, who were just Amorites by a different name. 
it, it comes from Mesopotamia. The Bible overlaps with Greco-Roman mythology, which is why I wrote the book titled Blast Clash of the Titans, which is to show that these uh, sons of God that Peter and Jude wrote about, uh, the sons of God from Genesis chapter 6, the watchers who sinned, were the titans of the Greeks. And according to Revelation 9, they get out for a little while at the end, which will be the last clash of the titans. You so. But you start realizing that, wait a minute, these stories that our kids are being fed, you know, the uh, the Percy Jackson and the Olympian stories, there's actually biblical truth behind those stories. But, of course, kids are being fed the fake news version. Of course, that's, you know, the Greek and Roman mythology. Their religions were the fake news versions of the actual history that's contained in the Bible. And the archaeology is there to connect all of those dots. And that's that's what makes our our <laughs> our jobs, if you want to call them that, so exciting. Yeah, one of the things I find the most interesting within your research is all the, ep I think this is the right word, epitaphs of the gods. That epitaphs, means basically, yeah, yeah and uh, you know, I found that very fascinating because it connects almost all the religions, well, it's definitely Greek and Roman, uh, all the way back into ancient Mesopotamia as well. And they all connect with each other. And it's just taking one name or a god from an older religion and changing the name. But you find these same characteristics all over the world of the same god. And I always found that interesting because in school you're kind of taught, you know, that there's just mythology. It's like this is way more real than we were ever taught. You know what I mean? And it all connects to each other. It's absolutely well, incredible. When you, when you read the writings of the early church fathers from the uh, first couple of centuries, and, and I'm not – an expert in, uh, in in that field. I need to do more reading of the writings of the early church fathers. But uh, what I have read, it's pretty clear that the early church theologians like, um, uh, say, for example, Irenaeus, they understood that the gods of their pagan neighbors were real entities, mm. but but that they were the uh, fallen angels you know, of the Bible. I mean, they understood the connection between the Hebrew Bible and what the Greeks and the Romans were teaching one another, you know, what they, what they believe, their religion. In fact, so did the, uh, the Jewish religious scholars who translated the, the Septuagint, which is the, um, the Greek language Bible that was produced between two and 300 years before the birth of Jesus. Uh, the Greek king of um, Egypt, one of the successors of Alexander the Great, uh, Ptolemy, tasked a bunch of, uh, a group of Jewish religious scholars with translating their scriptures into Greek so that the Greeks could study it. Um, he wanted to understand what his subjects believed because uh, the Ptolemies off and on controlled um, the, the land of, uh, of Israel. Uh, there was a, an ongoing struggle between the Ptolemies of Egypt and the Seleucid kings who were based in Syria. But uh, anyway, under his um, patronage, these Jewish scholars translated the older Greek texts that they had at that time, again, two, 300 BC, into, uh, into Greek. And there are places where it's very clear that they understood that the titans of Greek religion were connected to the giants, the Nephilim and the Rephaim of their texts. A couple places, and I have to look it up, but I, off the top of my head, I believe it's uh, 2 Samuel 21. I could be mistaken. I should know this because it's kind of an important uh, section of scripture. Uh, David goes out to fight the Philistines in the valley of Rephaim which is the valley southwest of Jerusalem. Both places, the uh, Jewish scholars translated it as the Valley of the Titans. So th they didn't have a problem connecting those verses. Uh, there's also a passage at the end of Isaiah 26 that uh, 
is a prophecy of uh, resurrection. And uh, in the Septuagint translation, when you kind of dig into it a little bit, it's, it's clear that um, uh, they understood that uh, the prophecy of resurrection for the faithful in, in Yahweh, that was you know, pretty similar to the Masoretic Hebrew text, which is what our English Bibles, our English Old Testaments are based on. But the, uh, the last part of the, uh, the verse, and I believe it's uh, verse 19 of Isaiah 26, reads in, in the English translation of the Septuagint, uh, the land of the ungodly or the land of the impious will fall. And scholars who've looked at it, uh, because earlier in Isaiah 26, there's a reference to the Rephaim. Uh, they are Rephaim, they will not rise, they will not be resurrected. Uh, this land of the impious, according to scholars, is probably a reference to Tartarus and the Titans, the, uh, who clearly then, if you're connecting them to the Rephaim, which were the spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood, uh, then you're, what you're saying is the Titans of Greek mythology are the sons of God from Genesis chapter six. So this was understood in the early church and Jewish scholars in the first couple of centuries. Uh, it's just over the last 1800 years, and especially since Augustine in the early fifth century, that we've lost that understanding of the overlap between Greek and Roman mythology and the Bible. Absolutely, and I, you know, this will be a, a good transition into the topic that we're gonna be talking about tonight. And uh, it's one of our, well, Brian and I's favorite groups to talk about. And I think it's mostly because they're so open about their agendas and it's absolutely, <laughs> insane you know you just go to their website and and you'll see they'll, they'll talk all about it but we're going to be talking about you know the world economic forum their agendas and the second coming of saturn right and i just want to know uh when you when you brought this up to me i was excited because we also have a, a show coming up in a few weeks um talking about the world economic forum with another brother and uh, we've done past shows on william ramsey and some other shows about the World Economic Forum. So we're pretty familiar with them, but you know, I've been wanting to connect it to the entities and the powers that be um, and try to explain that to everybody. But I guess, you know, we have you on for that. So can you go ahead and just explain or, uh, you know, give us a rundown of how they connect? What really inspired the book, The Second Coming of Saturn was, uh, you know, first of all, this entity, Saturn, uh, Kronos, um, but known by many different names throughout the the, the his throughout history, going back to uh, Shemiyaza, the chief of the Watchers rebellion in uh, First Enoch. Uh, I think that uh, he is the same entity that the uh, the Akkadians and Babylonians called Enlil, that the Philistines and Amorites called Dagon, that the Canaanites called El, that uh, the the Ammonites called Milcom, the Hebrews called Molech. Uh, Kronos to the Greeks, Baal Haman to the Phoenicians, Saturn to the Romans. I think it's all the same entity. Um, but at the end of 2020, I should have I should have probably had this book out a year earlier if I'd been you know thinking about it. Uh, we we had this great astronomical uh, phenomenon where Jupiter and Saturn came together in conjunction in the night sky, and it happened on December 21st, which is the uh, the winter solstice which is a date that's important on a, on a cult calendars. But uh, what's really significant is they met at zero degrees of the constellation Aquarius. Now, to be clear, as Christians, we, you know, we know that uh, our, our fates, our destinies, our futures are not determined by the movement of the planets in the night sky. But there are some very wealthy, very important people in this world who do think that. I mean, you know, even conservative 
Republicans. Nancy Reagan set Ronald Reagan's calendar when he was president by uh, advice on, of her astrologers. So, uh, you know, this shouldn't surprise us. This is a very old thing. Th this conjunction was the closest observable conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn since the year 1226. But for astrologers, they call this was this was an important meeting. They called it the Great Mutation because the meeting at zero degrees of Aquarius meant that this was the official final entry into the age of Aquarius. You know, 50 years after the fifth dimension had that hit record, we finally are in fully into the age of Aquarius. And this represents to astrologers a shift to a world that is less materialistic and more decentralized, or at least that's what they say. Um, what they think it means is a return to the golden age when Saturn or Kronos ruled in heaven. Um, and this is in part based on the prophecy of the poet Virgil, who was a Roman poet who wrote in uh, the first century BC. He was a contemporary of Julius Caesar and then Octavian, who became Caesar Augustus. Um, this all uh, I, I think signaled to the elites, the globalist elites of the World Economic Forum and those who support this agenda, that the time had come to push forward with this plan to for the Great Reset, to um, try to finally achieve this, this prophesied return to a golden age. Uh, the, the, the prophecy, uh, Virgil's prophecy, is in a poem that he wrote about the year 40 BC, uh, really, it was political propaganda for one of his patrons. Um, and when you're a poet in the ancient world, you basically need a rich guy to cover your expenses if you want to uh, have a have a nice lifestyle. Uh, and this uh, this fellow's name was Gaius Asinius Polio, who was um, the consul of Rome at that time, which um, in the first century BC, that was the highest elected official in Rome, sort of like the president. Uh, he really wasn't the power broker because... Um, Julius Caesar, the, the triumvirate, Julius Caesar, um, Pompey, and the third guy named um, Lepidus, I guess, were the uh, the three men who were uh, really ran things in, in Rome. Uh, but Gaius, to flatter uh, Gaius uh, Polio, um, Virgil wrote uh, what he called his fourth eclogue. And this has been treated as, a, as an actual prophecy for 2,000 years. By some very prominent people. Tom Horn has written about this in his books, um, uh, Apollyon Rising 2012 and then Zenith 2016. Uh, it reads, now the last age by Kume's Sibyl Sung. Uh, this is a reference to the Kumean Sibyl, which is the most important of the, um, the oracles in the Greek and Roman world. The last age by Kume's Sibyl Sung has come and gone, and the majestic role of circling centuries begins anew. Justice returns, returns old Saturn's reign with a new breed of men sent down from heaven. And then it goes on from there. Uh, this was um, adopted in part into the Great Seal of the United States by Charles Thompson when he developed the Great Seal in the late 18th century. Uh, this is loosely adapted from the fifth line of Virgil's poem, uh, Magnus ab integro seclorum nascutur ordo. The majestic role of circling centuries begins anew. That's where we get uh, Novus Ordo Seclorum, New Order of the Ages. And in the 1930s, 1935, this great seal was added to the dollar bill by Henry Wallace and Franklin D. Roosevelt, both of them 32nd degree Scottish Rite Freemasons. Wallace was really a mystic and um, 
on his advice, got Roosevelt to agree to put the Great Seal on the back. That's the unfinished pyramid with the eye of Horus above it. Um, what's interesting is that's the reverse side of the Great Seal, not the front side. That reverse side with the unfinished pyramid has never, ever been used to seal an official United States government document. But FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, switched the, uh, the, the eagle, which is the front side of the seal, with the unfinished pyramid and put the unfinished pyramid on the, on the left side of the reverse of the dollar bill to make it appear as though it's the more important part, the seal, which of course to Freemasons and occultists, it actually is. Um, yep. And the meaning of the unfinished pyramid, of course, is that this recognizes uh, or this represents um, the, the grand architect of the universe um, finally fitting things into place and uh, the United States in the full strength of its power, assuming leadership among the nations in inaugurating the new order of the ages, Novus Ordo Seclorum. So uh, again, occult adepts have seen this as uh, a prophecy and this image of Jupiter handing the baton to Saturn on December 21st of 2020 appears to be the, the signal for those in power, globalists, to push forward with this agenda. And this just represents the, uh, uh, again, the return of Saturn to his place as uh, king in the heavens. Um, if, if you're familiar with the, the myth or the story from Rome or from Greece, it's the same story, essentially. Uh, Saturn or Kronos uh, was overthrown by the storm god, Jupiter or Zeus, uh, just as Saturn, Kronos, overthrew the sky god, Calus in Rome, Uranus in, uh, in Greece. But what wasn't known until the 1940s is, like everything else about Greco-Roman religion, it came from Mesopotamia. The Hurrians, who are an ancient people who we can trace back, and I do this in the book, because I think it's important. The Hurrians, who are in the Bible as the Horites, trace their origins back to the middle of the fifth millennium BC, so about 4,500 BC, on the plains of Ararat, the Ararat Plain, in other words, the lowlands below the mountain where Noah's Ark came to rest. And in their religion, their creator god called Kumarbi, the equivalent of Saturn or Kronos, overthrew the sky god Anu, and just like Saturn and Kronos castrated their father when they took over, Kumarbi did the same thing. Scholars, when they translated these uh, ancient Hurrian texts, were like, wow, this is a lot like the story of Kronos and Uranos. And, and it's so similar that it can't be coincidence, because just like the stories in Greece and Rome, when uh, Kumarbi had been on the throne for a little while, his son, the storm god, the equivalent of Zeus and Jupiter, Baal in the Canaanite religion, uh, called Teshuk, deposed his father and sent him to the netherworld where Kumarbi is now confined in the netherworld, just like Kronos and Saturn. So this is a very old story. And yet the occultists have been hanging on this promise of a return to a golden age the return of the pre-flood world with a new breed of men sent down from heaven. Now, if we analyze this from a, a Christian perspective with an understanding of what Genesis 6 is all about, it's like, wait a minute. They really want to bring back a pre-flood world and all of the problems that those giants, those hybrid spirits that were never supposed to exist created. That's what they're trying to do. And 
that is, in fact, what they're trying to do. And they're almost completely open about it at this point. The exoteric has become completely esoteric or uh, opposite. The SOs become exo. Yeah, they've always kind of really been open and willing to tell us the plans, right, uh, to a certain extent, because they kind of want us to sign on to it as well. Or, or some may say that they're required to have a sign on it as well. Now, we know that nothing happens outside of God's will, and there's going to be a lot of this that we're just not going to understand. And sometimes I find myself wondering, am I digging too deep? You know, but a lot of what you said about the renaming, but they're sharing these attributes. When we look at the Tower of Babel, I mean, that's pretty much exactly what we're told. You're going to have these people that were worshiping a God that was not the one true God. And then as they parted ways with new languages, they went telling the same stories in a different tongue. I mean, we have scripture that backs up exactly that. And so as we look at the paper trail that we are given, and we can even use some of, you know, secular history and zoom in on some of those things and see, okay, this is what played such a heavy part in the enemy's plan. And this is what, you know, Christ's mission was to battle against. Exactly. And one of the things that uh, Sharon and I have been researching and, uh, you know, kind of circling back to uh, part, you'll forgive me if I use that phrase from our late lamented uh, White House press secretary, um, circle back to the reference to the, the archaeology conference. It, it dawned on us over the last month or so that while this entity, uh, Saturn, Kronos, which, uh, again, I, I make the case in the book that this is the chief of the watchers and the leader of that rebellion in Genesis chapter six, Shemiyaza that he and his colleagues are in chains in gloomy darkness. Again, that's according to Jude 6 and 7, 2 Peter 2, verse 4. They are confined. They are in Tartarus, the abyss, the bottomless pit. They don't get out until Revelation chapter 9. But Satan still walks the earth, which suggests that as dangerous as Satan is, as deceptive as he is, God doesn't consider him as dangerous as Saturn, Shemiyaza. And when you look at the personal interventions that God made in scripture, they all seem to be related to this entity with the exception of the parting of the Red Sea, but uh, the, the mass destructions, let me put it that way. When God came down and destroyed the, the world through flood, it was to put a stop to the, uh, the predations, the destruction caused by these, uh, uh, these hybrid giants and, uh, and their fathers, who, like I said, were confined, according to Peter and Jude. This is also explicit in uh, the book of First Enoch. When God destroyed Babel, why was Babel destroyed? In my first book, The Great Inception, I looked at research from a, uh, an Egyptologist by the name of David Roll, uh, who argues that the Tower of Babel was not at Babylon. And, and I agree, uh, at the time that Nimrod existed, and Nimrod is usually credited with being the builder of the Tower of Babel, his kingdom, the city of Uruk, the city-state of Uruk, when it dominated Mesopotamia, and scholars know this, they've got it pretty well dated, the Uruk period of history, 3900 to about 3100 BC, Babylon didn't even exist. Babylon wasn't even created, doesn't, it was not settled until about 2300 BC, and even then it didn't become a great city until Hammurabi came along around 17. 1750 BC. So Babel was not at Babylon. It was probably at the city of Eridu, where the oldest ziggurat 
uh, in Mesopotamia has been found. It uh, probably dates back to about 5000 BC. Starts off as a small little 10 by 10 structure, but over time uh, being rebuilt at least 18 times. They found 18 separate uh, levels to this uh, ziggurat. Uh, the last dig that was done um, at the site, I think was 1949, although there was an Italian team that was supposed to go back in 2015, but it's been kind of dangerous there. Uh, but in 1949, they found that the, uh, the, the, the top level, level one of this temple to the god Enki at Eridu, would have been the largest ziggurat in all of Mesopotamia, larger than the uh, great temple of Ur for the moon god, larger than the, uh, the ziggurat at Babylon, the temple of Marduk. The temple of Enki at Eridu would have been bigger than that, except it was not finished. According to the guys who dug back in 1949 in their report, they said for some unknown reason, construction ended and the end of construction at this temple coincided with the end of the Uruk period of history when that kingdom just sort of suddenly fell apart and the site was just covered over with sand. This happened around 3100 BC. Now, in the Bible, we, we understand the reason for that. It's like, oh yes, God confused their languages and they left off building the city. And there's some evidence from some of the Sumerian and Babylonian texts that uh, suggest that we're looking at the same event. For example, the, uh, uh, there's, a, there's an epic poem about a king of Uruk named Enmerkar, who was probably the historical Nimrod, uh, who wanted to rebuild this temple, the Temple of Enki. And uh, there's a reference to the confusion of language in that poem. So it's, you know, it, again, kind of a fake news version, but the, the, the tales are there. What's interesting, though, about the Temple of Enki, that this god was the god who lived in the Abzu, which is the Sumerian word from which we get the word abyss. Okay, so he was the lord of the abyss from which he sent out these um, supernatural wise men called Apkalu. And this Estonian scholar I mentioned earlier, Amar Anus, is the one who uh, uh, he pointed out that the Apkalu are essentially the Mesopotamian concept of the Watchers. The Mesopotamians knew who the Watchers were. They just called them Apkalu. And this is where Enmerkar, Nimrod, wanted to rebuild this temple. And according to the poem, Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata, he wanted to build it and, and enhance it and make it an abode of the gods. Reading between the lines, uh, we think what they were trying to do in ancient Uruk was reestablish contact with the old gods who had not only mated with humans and created these supernaturally strong hybrids called Nephilim, but it also taught humanity things we weren't supposed to know, like sorcery, witchcraft, uh, divining the future, um, you know, things like that, how to, how to make weapons out of metal and things like that. Uh, so God came down and put a stop to it. I mean, could they have actually established contact with the entities in the abyss? Don't know, but God put a stop to it. It was so important that God put a stop to it. Then, so you got the flood, you got Babel, and then you've got Sodom. Why did God find it necessary to destroy Sodom? Look, if it was just because of an alternate lifestyle, God would be smiting cities all over the planet every, every century in human history. It was more than that. And this gets back to the dolmens, these funerary monuments for the cult of the dead at the base of Sodom. According to Dr. Collins, they were able to excavate a few of these dolmens that somehow had not been robbed out. I mean, in, in Israel and Jordan, 
there, there's so much archaeology there and treasure hunters, you know, they call them night diggers. They go out to these sites with shovels at night and disrupt all these archaeological sites. Archaeologists hate them. Uh, but they found three dolmens that had not been excavated and they were able to find what was inside. They are not tombs. They were used and um, what they believe were rituals for the dead because Sodom actually had uh, tombs near the city. And it appears that on a certain day of the year, uh, and they're, they're extrapolating from texts that have been found from other sites in Mesopotamia, but it appears that on a certain night, one night a year, they would go down to the tomb, they would take out a bone of a, of a beloved ancestor, bring it to the dolmen, and put it along with uh, other uh, sacrificial offerings for the dead ancestors in the dolmen. And because Sodom was continuously occupied from about 4000 BC, you know, before the time uh, Nimrod's kingdom came to be, until the time of Abraham and Lot, probably down to about 1750 BC or thereabouts, they've got a window into a religious cult and those practices that were ongoing continuously for almost 2,500 years. And to give your listeners a sense of the scale of time we're talking about, 2,500 years ago, Nebuchadnezzar had just destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, more or less. So this is what was going on at Sodom. And 400 years later, when Moses and the Israelites got there and began falling into the cult of Baal Peor, in our book, Veneration, Sharon and I showed that that, uh, that was probably a name that meant Lord of the opening to the netherworld. Then God sent a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. So he destroyed Sodom, which was the center of this cult of the dead in the Jordan Valley. 400 years later, Moses and the Israelites arrived there. And according to Psalm 106, verse 28, it was the fact that uh, the Israelites began eating sacrifices offered to the dead that God was provoked to anger and sent this plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. So I'm taking a, a short story and making it long, but the bottom line is these major events, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the destruction of Sodom, and then the follow-up event with Moses and the Israelites, 24,000 of them dying because they fell into this cult of the dead, are all connected to this entity, Shemiyaza, Kronos, Saturn, and the cult of the dead, which are actually the cult of the demonic spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood. It's a, it's a thread that weaves all the way through the Bible. And in my book, I argue that this same entity, Shemiyaza or Saturn, is the leader of the entities that got out of the, the abyss in Revelation 9, the angel of the bottomless pit or the destroyer, Abaddon or Apollyon. It's all connected. And again, I think it's significant that he, God was compelled to lock him up in the abyss while Satan is still allowed to travel to and fro on the earth, tormenting and accusing humanity. Now, do you think that what the World Economic Forum is doing right now with all their different agendas and even not even just them, you know, you get the United Nations and the Club of Rome um, and some other groups, too, that are all basically have this globalist agenda. Do you do you believe that, like everything that they're doing, they're just trying to set up a world that is fit to be ruled by these entities? and especially the Antichrist? Well, that's a really interesting question because it's hard to know what the, the motivations of these entities are. Um, 
in in her series of novels, the Red Wing Saga, Sharon writes the uh, the rebels, the fallen, as united against uh, God, but competing with one another. In the right, same way that right. you know hu- human politicians do the same thing. I mean, Democrats in the last election cycle all wanted to get rid of Trump, but then they were fighting with each other over who get to take over when he when he was you know pushed out. So I think that's what's going on in the fallen realm as well. You know, is is Satan, if he was not as powerful in Old Testament times as this entity, Shemiyaza, what is his motivation then? I mean, when you read the Old Testament, Satan is conspicuously absent. Most of us who grew up in church were taught that Satan is the great enemy of God. And it's clear that he's the leader of the rebellion in the book of Revelation. Jesus in uh, uh, Revelation uh, 12 mentions that Satan has a kingdom. You know, if Satan Satan cast out demons by his own power, how will his kingdom stand? But in the Old Testament, he's not that guy. He's just the accuser of the brethren. He's sort of like the prosecuting attorney. Ah, see Job, he's going to sin. Ah, see this guy over here, what he's doing? That's He, he doesn't seem to have any power or authority, which is why I argue in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, I know I'm rambling a bit here and I appreciate your patience with me. Uh, those chapters that describe the the fall from Eden of Lucifer. I argue that Lucifer is actually Shemiyaza or Saturn, not Satan, uh, because there's nothing in the Old Testament that connects Satan to the netherworld. So the question is then, what is the goal of these human dupes working on behalf of these supernatural enemies? And what is the end game? Who is maneuvering the pieces behind the scenes and what do they hope to achieve? It, it appears that these humans think they're gonna be able to create heaven on earth. And maybe that is the goal of this entity who was cast out of Eden, who I argue is Shemiyaza slash Saturn slash Abaddon Apollyon, not Satan. Because if I'm right, and that's who is in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, then it appears that this entity was the anointed guardian cherub in Eden. And of course, when you read in Ezekiel 28, verse 13, the description of every precious stone that was his covering, uh, those stones match the stones that are in the ephod worn by the high priest of Israel, which suggests that maybe this entity was the high priest in Eden before he got kicked out of the garden. And he wants his throne back. He wants his position back. You've also got another entity who's part of the group of Elohim placed over the nations after the Tower of Babel incident. Uh, that's referenced in Ezekiel, or rather uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, where God divided the nations. He numbered them according to the number of the sons of God, the Bnei Elohim. Um, this entity in ancient Mesopotamia was called Inanna, Ishtar, Astarte in the Bible. Uh, we believe that she is the spirit Maybe it's more appropriate to say it because don't know if they're actually male or female. Uh, she manifests as a female. We believe that she is uh, Mystery Babylon in uh, the book of Revelation, the woman in scarlet. She thinks that she is going to ride the Antichrist system, the beast system, and control it. Uh, the Antichrist, we think, is another spirit entirely. Uh, we believe that that is chaos or Leviathan. Um, and you'll note that... Uh, this this harlot, the, this this woman in scarlet meets a very bad end when the kings of the earth and uh, the beast turn on her and destroy her. Uh, again, there's um, competition 
between the members of the fallen realm. So what are what are the uh, the the humans, the globalists, the World Economic Forum trying to do? In a nutshell, I think they're trying to recreate the uh, the one world kingdom of Nimrod. Um, I think that they believe that if we're all into a one world government system, we'll be easier to control. Um, according to end times prophecy, by the time they establish that system, uh, as uh, believers in a pre-tribulation rapture, uh, based on our understanding of the 70 weeks prophecy given to Daniel, that um, the church will be out of here. Uh, and that by Revelation 15, which we were just studying today, those uh, faithful who come out of the tribulation period refusing to take the mark of the beast and worship the beast and its image and its number, once they're out of the world, then that's it. God says, okay, no more opportunities to repent. Now comes the wrath. They may think they're going to create heaven on earth. It is literally going to be hell on earth. And uh, those humans who are left during that period of history are going to wish they had uh, listened to the crazy Bible-thumping Christians when they had the chance. Absolutely. I'm curious. Uh, we also know that the adversary, the enemy, will definitely use anyone or anything. We see him use the serpent in the garden. We see the, the Antichrist and handing the power over to the beast and these things. And so do you think there's any connection with Azazel, you know, the scapegoat? What are your thoughts on, uh, you know, is there any connections with uh, that entity as well into the, the bigger picture that you're talking about here? I think Azazel is one of the um lieutenants of Shemiaza. When you read First Enoch, and again, this is speculative, we understand First Enoch is not scripture, so we can only, we can only take it so far. But uh, as a working theory, Shemiaza was described as the chief of the watchers. He was the head of that rebellion. But Azazel was described as the one responsible for teaching us forbidden knowledge, sort of like Prometheus, who uh, in the Greek religion stole, he's one of the titans, he stole uh, fire from Olympus and gave it to humanity against Zeus's wishes. And so he was locked up in, uh, in Tartarus and uh, tor tortured for all of, uh, uh, you know, for all eternity. Um, I, I think that's where he is now. If, if Azazel is based on an actual watcher class entity who rebelled at the same time as Shemiyaza, then uh, he is he is in chains in gloomy darkness until the uh, final judgment comes. And then they get out for five months at the end. And, and that period of time, by the way, Re in Revelation 9, that they get out for five months, it, it's so strange. And like Mike Heiser says, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's important. It, it's not, mm -hmm. the, um, it's, it's, it's not a, a typical number used symbolically in Scripture, like three or seven or ten or forty or one hundred or whatever. Um, 70, which is a, a number that's very important. That's a number that represents the complete set, you know, all of them, not one left out. But, 50, but you know, 150 or days or, or five months, that's, that's a weird number. You only find it two places in the Bible. One is Revelation 9, when these things from the abyss come flying out and torment humanity for five months. The other is in Genesis 7 and 8, where it's mentioned twice that Noah's Ark spent 150 days on the water before coming to rest in the mountains of Ararat. And that's in a lunar calendar of 30 days. That's five months exactly. I, I think that's more evidence that we're dealing with the same entities in Revelation 9 that we saw during the time of Noah, the angels who sinned uh, in, in the days of Noah back in Genesis 6. 
For sure, you know, and we see that kind of Gnostic Masonic view with the Prometheus story and they kind of view the serpent in the garden or the entity behind that as, as offering that fire from the gods, that knowledge. And, you know, uh, it's just interesting. It's always full circle. You know, the, the one the things that seem the most unrelated generally just circle right back. And, you know, we also see we're going to end up kind of in that same position, right? We're going to see the, the destruction of this place by fire, not water. And, uh, you know, the New Jerusalem come down and so uh you know we do have that hope and we find that hope you know and we try to share that hope with the other listeners but i do think uh for sure we're going to entertain ourselves with something so i'd mentioned earlier at what point are we like digging too deep and worried too much about stuff that's not a salvation issue because we hear those arguments and and the infighting and the brethren at times you know over that but we're going to be entertained by something. Why not be something that pertains to the biblical narrative, right? And have a better understanding of the enemy's plans and what they intend to use against us. Because we know the heart is deceitful above all things who can know it, right? So we can't lean on our own understanding. So we jump right into the word of God to find those answers. And so I I just definitely appreciate a lot of the insight that you offer on some of those things, because we're going to fill our time and our uh, selves with something, right? Uh, I would say keeping it biblical, that's a, a pretty good approach. Amen to that. Um, And I think it gets back to this. This was important to Jesus. So maybe we should take it seriously too. Um, When I've talked with uh, our good friend, uh, Dr. Judd Burton about uh, the Nephilim and, you know, why it's important. What, what does he say to people who argue that this is a fringe topic? That's not really important. All we need to know, you know, all we should be all just talking about Jesus. And, and I agree because without Jesus, we got nothing, but Judd said, you know, it's two words, Caesarea Philippi. And that's the ancient city that was at the base of Mount Hermon, just outside mm-hmm. the cave called the Grotto of Pan or Benias. Jesus made a specific trip there to reveal his divinity to his uh, disciples. You know, that was where he asked the important question to Peter. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, replied, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, well, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this wasn't revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And on this rock, standing in front of a 9,200 foot mountain that everyone in the ancient world knew was the home of the creator God, El, and his wife, Asherah, who was called the serpent lady or the dragon lady, the lady who treads on the sea. And there's 70 sons representing the gods of the nations. On this 9,200 foot rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, everyone in the ancient world knew was that grotto of Pan, that big cave right over there that the Jordan River emerged from. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, just a few weeks ago, I stumbled onto a paper by a German scholar who cited some research from an, an archaeologist in the 19th or the 19th century. This was a fellow by the name of Claude Condor, who was a a military man who made a number of expeditions to Palestine, as it was called back in the day, to uh, survey the land. Uh, The Palestine Exploration Fund being sent over there by the the British government, partly for the archaeology, but partly to survey the land because the Ottoman Empire was collapsing and they wanted to get their hooks into, uh, you know, the pieces that were left over. finally fulfill what the uh, crusaders had, had not been able to do you know 800 <laughs> years earlier but right. uh, condor wrote as he was looking for a place called bethany across the jordan and, and i don't even remember how i stumbled onto this it was just one of those things well okay god led me to it i i'll, I'll give credit where's you know the holy spirit um in john 1 verse 28 actually beginning at verse 24 uh 
John the Apostle, writing about John the Baptist in his, his ministry, uh, places his work at a place called um, Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The King James as, translates Bethany as Beth Abara, but most of the English Bibles will read Bethany across the Jordan. Now, the thing is, the only Bethany that anybody knows about for sure is the one on the Mount of Olives. Across the Jordan, however, means east of the Jordan River. So it's not the Bethany where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It's another site. Nobody's been able to find it for 2,000 years. The United Nations, back in 2015, designated a site near Jericho, but on the Jordan side of the River Jordan, as the official site. And so the Jordanian government has now built a tourist location there where people can go and be baptized in the river where they think Jesus was baptized by John. Except, if you look where Jesus called the first disciples, which is just a few verses later, John 1, verse 35, um, it's all from north of the Sea of Galilee. I mean, Peter and Philip and Andrew were all from Bethsaida, which is like a mile north of the Sea of Galilee. So how did, how did Jesus get there, wow. like within a day of being baptized by John? Because um, John was saying, you know, that, that day, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, Condor, Claude Condor in 1877 said, you know, the Greek that's been translated Bethany, Bethania, is probably a transliteration of the old Greek name for the region, Batania, which is Bashan. Oh, like Og of Bashan, the region north and northeast of the Sea of Galilee which not coincidentally is covered with dolmens, these megalithic funerary monuments for the cult of the dead. It's also where you find Gilgal Rephaim, about 10 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And in a region just north of the Sea of Galilee, um, there is a site that is very similar to Gilgal Rephaim. It's a megalithic structure about 150 feet across, concentric rings of, of basalt boulders around a central core, which is like a, a tumulus on top of a dolmen. Massive, megalithic funerary monument for the cult of the dead. And that whole area around there is so covered with dolmens that uh, an Israeli archeologist said, we can't even use the term dolmen fields anymore because you, you can't tell where one ends and another begins. In other words, ancient Bashan was a giant necropolis. It was devoted to the cult of the dead. And it is probable that that is where John the Baptist was baptizing, at Bashan across the Jordan. And that's where Jesus went to be baptized. Not just, he didn't just go there to declare his divinity a, few, a couple of years into his ministry at the base of Mount Hermon. He went to Bashan to be baptized. And now coming back to the wilderness, this is right after John said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make way to, make straight the way of the Lord, fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah said. Except when Isaiah wrote it, if you go back and find the scripture in Isaiah, it's I am a voice crying out, make straight a way in the wilderness for the Lord. Because the wilderness was known to be where demons lived. Jesus went to this wilderness called Bashan across the Jordan to be baptized. And then Satan took him into the wilderness to tempt him. It wasn't the wilderness of Judah in the south. 
it was in the north amongst all of these monuments to the dead because as part of his temptation, Satan took him up a very high mountain to show him the kingdoms of the world. I said, I'll give all these to you if you just bow the knee. Where else could he have been? Very high mountain. The only one in Israel is Mount Hermon, where this rebellion of the watchers began. And after Jesus declared his divinity to Peter and the disciples at the base of Mount Hermon, six days later, he and James and Peter and John climbed Mount Hermon for the transfiguration. And from there, Jesus went to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. This is all about this war with the spirits of the dead created by this rebel, Shemiyaza slash Saturn slash Kronos slash Apollyon. And that's going to be the focus of our next book coming out in 2023, which we're uh, working on right now. It's called The Gates of Hell. But from beginning to end, this whole war is about subduing this enemy. Yes, yeah, Satan is part of this rebellion, no question. But this entity, Shemiyaza, Apollyon, Saturn, Kronos, Dagon, whatever you want, Molech, same entity, different names. This one is in prison while Satan is still roaming free. He gets out for a little while at the end, but not for very long. Again, when people say this is all fringe, this, this really isn't all that important. It's like, really? Because Jesus seems to have focused his ministry around all of this. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, I want to read this because it's, it's stunning when you read and understand what, what this means. Just after the account of uh, Satan taking him to the high mountain and showing him the kingdoms of the world, Matthew 4, verse 12, when he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. Again, that's a region in the north around the Sea of Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, very near where the Jordan River enters the sea. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, that's that famous Roman highway, the Via Maris, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, east of the Jordan River, Galilee of the Gentiles, describing ancient Bashan. Now here's the money quote, Matthew 4, verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Matthew understood that Jesus moving to that region, to Capernaum, as his base of operations, fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. People living in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus moving to this area, surrounded by these funerary monuments for the cult of the dead, fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. This, to me, is stunning. Is the Jordan Valley between the Sea of Galilee and Mount Hermon, is that the valley of the shadow of death? Possible. Absolutely incredible. That's why I love your work, man. It's mind-blowing. And I can't get over, I mean, because it's, so, it's, it's fascinating to me, but I cannot get over how much this all connects Everything connects. All the ancient religions connect. The prophecies, you know, Saturn. I don't even know how to describe it. What I'm trying to say is that this type of work is so fascinating to me because these are things that you're just not taught. And if we were to be taught this, I mean, the most important thing for, for a Christian is to be biblically literate. And that means diving deeper than the surface. 
And when it comes to things like Mount Hermon and Jesus going there, you know, and uh, Caesarea Philippi and his statements being, as we, you said earlier, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail. I, I can't express how much deeper the Bible is compared to what most people think. And I feel like even secular researchers could identify. I don't I'm not sure how they deny the word of God. I guess that's what I'm really trying to say. I'm blown away. Because when I hear this stuff, I'm like, holy smokes. For example, we have a guy coming on uh, on the 6th who is not a Christian, but he studies um, all the facets, the World Economic Forum, all that stuff. And Ali Siadatan is going to come on with us, and we're going to bring all that stuff to a biblical perspective. And with this type of information, we're hoping to convince people who are very, very intelligent but just don't have that last piece of the puzzle and i feel like this type of work can really uh could help fit that piece in for them you know what i'm saying well it it was very humbling to to learn and uh, i wish the guys had reached out to me to uh, just you know uh, uh, ask me to be on their program but the the guys the mysterious universe podcast down in uh, australia somehow and it's a secular podcast they got a copy of the second coming of saturn and uh, were very intrigued by the connections to the uh, occult symbolism built into the art and architecture of the United States Capitol. And, you know, Tom Horn has written about that extensively, but uh, connected it in different ways in, in my book. And, well, you know, I'm glad that they, they saw it. it. We sell a few copies of the books. Okay, that's fine. But more important is that it maybe plants some seeds that helps people to realize, hey, there's a reason the world is in such a mess. The Christian worldview right actually explains why bad things happen to good people. Contrary to, yep. you know, skeptics who think they're clever will say, well, you know, if God was so good, then why, why, uh, why will bad things happen to little children? Or, or it's, it's because he created us all in this world, both uh, in the natural and the supernatural, with free will. Um, the only way to eliminate anybody ever doing evil is to eliminate free will, make us all little slaves, little automatons. Uh, right. unable to choose to do what we want. Um, and of course, th- those are the kind of people who don't want to be told what to do. They think uh, Christianity and the Bible is just a, a list of uh, rules that you're not supposed to break. Um, and, that, and that's a fundamental misunderstanding, but it's a a willful ignorance on their part. And it is in part spiritual. They, they've got blinders on because of the whispers of the principalities and powers behind the scene. And that's really the challenge for us as Christians. It's really easy to get angry at um, is it Klaus Schwab and uh, the, the bankers and the the uh, uh, you know big pharma and big oil and and you know et cetera et cetera, but they are dupes. And Paul made it clear in the church to the the letter to the church at Ephesus: We wrestle not against flesh and blood. That wasn't just a saying; he was literally saying, "We're wrestling against our re- actual enemies are these principalities and powers, these supernatural evil intelligences who want to destroy us." That's who we need to war against. And our only real weapon there is prayer or prayer and fasting. You know, I'm careful to say that we should all, as Christians here in the United States, take part in the political process, but let's just not get so caught up in it that we forget that we're not trying to vote Jesus into the White House because that's not gonna happen. We're not gonna save, save anyone at the ballot box. Salvation comes through 
grace by faith in Jesus Christ and no other way. And that will only spread by our witness. And if the people who need Christ the most see nothing but anger in our eyes or hatred or what they perceive as hatred, then they're just going to reject the gospel because of what they see in us. They're not rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting us. But sadly, that won't be an excuse for them on the day of the Lord when his uh, patience runs out. We never underestimate the power of the gospel as well, right? Like often we kind of feeling like Jonah, right? Like, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't want to, you know, but we should be praying for these people, right? We should be praying for Klaus Schwab because we can see a revival and, you know, deep down, do we want to see their destruction or do we want to see them tear their clothes and take up a sackcloth, you know? Right, because we're in in God's eyes, uh, based on his standards of righteousness, we are no better. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as John wrote, uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So by God's standards, he, he grades on a pass fail, not on a curve. And all of us fail without the grace of Jesus Christ. And um, that's nothing we did to earn that. And uh, so a little humility on the part of us uh, Christians would probably go a long way. And, you know, um, just to touch on a, your, a little earlier point about the symbolism, um, you know, you find symbolism all over the world from the Palace of Osiris to the Statue of Liberty to, you know, the Goddess Columbia on, on the Capitol building. When people get into this and do not know uh, the Bible or don't believe in the Bible, but they, but they recognize all these other things, right? They recognize the symbolism. They recognize a lot of Freemasons, you know, have control and power or sway over the political sphere and all this stuff right to me it it, it begs the question why did why do they do this then why do they put all these ancient pagan gods all over the place and venerate them essentially or you know give respect to them through their symbolism then you can take it back and say well this is what ephesians 6 says like these are the gods that the most powerful people in the world, they, they must believe in them if they're taking all this effort to basically put their symbolism all over the place, especially the dollar bill, right? So you got Osiris on there and you got Saturn. Like that's what most people think it is, is, is Osiris. He's the god of the underworld and the Egyptian, right? But right. You, you connected it to Saturn. That was a big thing too. But it's, it's almost like they're doing this for a reason. They're showing you who really is behind the scenes working through them and then you can take that back to the bible and say well this is what the bible says about that this is exactly what ephesians 6 is talking about and i think that if people don't know god uh they can we can use these types of things as showing symbolism or showing um these different you know kind of avenues and bring it all back to the word of god because that's one of the reasons why i was saved is i realized well it's clearly obvious that the people uh, in the top seats, you know, the, the people with the power and control of the world are clearly Satanists when it comes down to it. And if they believe in Satan, if they truly believe in Satan, that means Jesus Christ is real. And if Jesus Christ is real, I got to choose a side. Like, this is no joke. You know what I mean? And that's how I really had my eyes open to the fact that the spiritual warfare was real and, and all this stuff was really going on. And the biblical perspective is the only way to really filter all of this stuff going on around us correctly. It's the only one that makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for me, it was it was the eyewitness testimony of, um, well, what Paul wrote to the Church of Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians 15. 
that uh, the risen Jesus appeared first to Peter and then to James and then to uh, uh, the rest of the disciples and then to 500 brothers at once, some of whom have fallen asleep, but the rest are still awake. Uh, what Paul was saying is, look, the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus is at the, the very foundation of the faith, because if he's not raised, then we're still in our sins. Right. But there are hundreds of witnesses who are still walking around today. If you don't believe me, send somebody to Jerusalem and ask around. Um, in fact, it was the story of James, the uh, half-brother of Jesus, that really um, got me to, you know, that, that really sank in. I was about you know 35 years old um, and had read, trying to figure out what it was I believed. I was reading The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And um, we read in John 7, verse 5, that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. And of course, James and Jude were, were two of those half-brothers. And yet we know that 30 years later, 30 years after the resurrection, James was martyred for his faith. So what was it that changed him from being a non-believer to being willing to die rather than recant his testimony that his brother was the Messiah? Well, it was the fact that the risen Christ appeared to him in the flesh, 1 Corinthians 15. Like, oh, okay. So this is all based on eyewitness testimony. And Paul was so confident that he was telling these, this church, look, some of you are saying there's no resurrection, but that's not true. If there's no resurrection, we're all doomed. But you've got all these hundreds of witnesses who are still, and this is written, what, 20 years after the resurrection? There's still hundreds of witnesses out there who saw it. Send someone to Judea and ask around and have them bring back the testimony. But, you know, Paul had to find out for himself. I mean, after his... Uh, experience in Damascus for a couple of years. He went to Arabia and then he went to Jerusalem. And according to the letter to the Galatians, he spent 15 days with uh, uh, with uh, Peter and James and uh, spent, uh, you know, what, why did he go there? Why did he find, I, I believe it's because he wanted to ask, am I a fool for believing this? Or what, what, you know, what really happened? Our faith is based on eyewitness testimony, people who saw what had happened. There were too many witnesses to the, the risen Christ, probably to Lazarus as well. As it was according to the Gospel of John, it was after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that the, uh, the Sanhedrin started plotting to kill him, and Lazarus too, which when you think about it is, is really, I mean, that's the height of hubris. Okay, this guy was dead and in the tomb for four days, which means he was really dead, and yet he's been raised from the dead, which means this Jesus is really who he says he is. Let's kill him. How nuts do you, how, how desperate do you have to be to reach that <laughs> right. conclusion? But it's because they were being manipulated by the powers and principalities themselves. I mean, the whole testimony, I mean, really, that this whole war is sort of encapsulated in the parable of the uh, the evil tenants, you know, the uh, the renters who are working a vineyard on behalf of a king who lives in a distant land. And uh, they they take the land and they're working the land and they're refusing to send the produce of the land, the harvest, to the king. So the king sends first one guy, and the uh, tenants beat him up and send him away, and they sends another guy. And, and these messengers represent the, the prophets. And finally, the king sends his son. And so the tenants who are working the vineyard say, ah, we'll kill him, and then we'll get his inheritance. Well, this is a picture of nothing else than these spirits, these fallen lesser Elohim, thinking that somehow if they kill the Messiah, if they kill you know, God in human form, 
that they will inherit the earth and that they will get dominion over the planet. Uh, in the Gospels, it says that the, uh, the, the scribes and Pharisees perceived that Jesus was talking about them and they realized the king, when he sends, uh, you know, his, uh, they killed his son, he's going to send men and they're going to be killed and destroyed. And then they realized, wait, he's talking about us. Let's get him. It's not just about the scribes and Pharisees. It's about the spirit beings behind them, manipulating them into thinking that somehow if they kill this man who says he's the Messiah and he's doing all these miraculous things to back up his claim, ha, but if we kill him, we'll get his inheritance. No, that's not the way the story ends. The book of Revelation explains how the story ends. There's also prophecies of the death of the gods in Isaiah 24, um, Psalm 82, and other places. But uh, a day is coming when those small g gods, the fallen angels who've been masquerading as gods for millennia, when their time will be up and they will die like men, according to Psalm 82. Amen. Well, you know, Derek, we've had you on for almost an hour and a half now. Um, <laughs> we got to have you on again, man. And uh, I appreciate you sticking in there with me while my brain is struggling to work tonight. So <laughs> I'm glad you took over there for a bit. Um, no worries. Is there any other closing comments or anything that you would like to uh, tell the audience or anybody out there listening? Just that this is a, a supernatural war in which we all play a part. Um, we're in the middle of like a Lord of the Rings type conflict. Uh, you think about this from the perspective of a writer. I mean, what more do you need? You've got uh, gods and angels and wizards and sorcerers and monsters and demons and, uh, you know, miracles and and you know, just epic battles and heroic self-sacrifice. This is a story in which all of us play a part. It will ultimately come to an end with God as the victor when he stands on the battlefield, according to Ezekiel 39, and declares, you know, and says, the world will know I am the Holy One in Israel. We will get to witness this and be part of that epic conclusion to this uh, long-running epic film. Um, I, I think if we can share that and communicate that to our kids and our grandkids, they'll take the Bible a lot more seriously. I mean, I can tell you, if I had known any of this stuff when I was 10, 12 years old, the Bible would have been way cooler. Church would have been right. a lot more fun. And not just from a you know fun goof-around standpoint, but hey, let's learn more about this. Who are these sons of God that God is going to punish? You know, hey, Job 41, what is what's that? What, this is describing a dragon. You mean dragons are real? Yeah, dragons are real. God says so. So we can share this, this excitement. We're not trying to dumb down the Bible. We're not trying to sensationalize it. The Bible is pretty sensational all by itself. We're, if we get back to the worldview of the early church, the apostles, the Hebrews, the, the, the Israelites, we'll get it. We'll understand it. And then our mission is to share that hope with our family members, our friends, our coworkers, our colleagues, to bring them behind our lines. We're like the men of the West outside the gates of Mordor. We're fighting a holding action until the king returns at the head of the heavenly host. We are not going to take the world back for Christ. We are not going to take America back for Christ. Our job is one soul at a time to share the hope that we have by showing the love of Christ, bring them behind our lines and protect them until the king returns or until we're called home. One way or another, the ultimate goal is to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
And uh, hey, you know, if, if we get like a little extra role and when they when they show that that epic film in heaven someday, you know, the new earth. Uh, look, I'm that guy way in the back of that mass multitude there, that little dot on the back of the screen. <laughs> I'll be happy with that. Uh, Brian, do you have anything you would like to say before we head out of here? Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I think that was a beautiful close. I don't know, uh, uh, you know, what what else I could add to that. I would say, Derek, if you wouldn't mind, would you do the honor of closing the show in prayer for us today? I would be honored. Father, thank you for granting us this time together as uh, as men seeking to better understand your will and your word. You know that each day, Lord, we fail you by thought, word, and deed. We come before you as beggars in tattered clothing, as as the prodigal sons, Lord, who've been uh, who've been working for the swineherd, covered in in pig filth, and uh, and 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 Lord, your word tells us that by confessing our sin and submitting to your lordship, that you will welcome us back into the family. That there is a celebration waiting. That each time one accepts your word. The angels in heaven rejoice when another one who's lost is, is found. So, Father, we just pray that as you've been gracious with us, may your spirit guide us and grant us wisdom to be gracious to those around us who may not know what they do. There are some in this world who knowingly align themselves with the enemy, but most do not. The faces we see in the evening news and those videos, angry faces, yelling and screaming and spitting and cursing your name, Father just as they cursed you when you were on the cross and you forgave them because they didn't know what they were doing. Lord, may we have that grace to know that it is not we that they are angry at, that we that they hate, but you. So Lord, help us to be loving, even to those who would curse your name, but firm in standing for your truth. The day is coming, Father, when you will restore righteousness to this world and bring justice. Till that day, Father, give us the strength, courage, and the wisdom to fight the battle your way, Father. We ask for your blessing. Pray for those who are struggling spiritually, financially, emotionally. May you bless them and encourage them, Lord. And again, grant us the wisdom and discernment to plant seeds that you can bring to fruition. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we go, one last thing I just want to say before we head out of here is, uh, you know, this great reset that that they're trying to achieve and eventually will achieve, according to the Bible, going to last for a short period. And it's only a counterfeit and nothing compared to the true reset that Christ will bring with a new heaven and a new earth. And we will be able to live in this this peace, in this harmony that we all so desire, apart from the pain and uh, and the tears and the struggles in every way you know we'll be with god one day our hope is in him because we know that he overcame the world he has promises that we can all hold on to while things on this earth tend to get worse and worse amen you know, so amen yeah so. they're pushing for the great reset but god has a greater reset already planned that's right all right brother well hopefully we can have you on again soon whenever you're available i'll stay in touch with you of course and uh, just want to thank you for everything that you do and Praise God for you being in our lives, and uh, you're doing great, man. You're producing fruit. Built me up more than I could ever even express. So I just thank you for all that you do, man, and I uh, hope God blesses you and your family. 
Thank you, fellows. God bless. It's been an honor. God bless. God bless. Much love. Thank you for listening to Buy Their Fruits. May the Lord bless the giver, the gift, and the receiver.